Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, this morning we will be in Hebrews chapter 4. We are going to talk about believer's rest. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get ready. People are constantly working. We're always at work. We're always looking to achieve something, to labor towards something. A lot of times that's a look for satisfaction. Maybe we can get satisfaction out of what we can gain, what we can accomplish. This can even be found in relationships, how deep you can grow a relationship, finding worth and value, and how you express yourself to others and being able to be a comfort to others. And not that necessarily any of those things are wrong, but at the end of the day, what we find is that we work and we work and we work, and ultimately we're just trying to find something of fulfillment, something to give us rest, and something to give us a sense of peace, a sense of understanding, of joy. The reality is that nothing that we do, nothing that we accomplish, nothing that we achieve can ever fulfill that for us. It always leaves us lacking. It always leaves us with a sense of wanting more, seeking more, desiring more. The reality is that as believers, should that happen? Should we not have this sense of rest? Shouldn't we as believers have a sense of rest about us? And in one case, obviously we expect and anticipate that answer would be yes, absolutely. There is this sense of a rest. There is a sense of a peace. But then at the same time, there is this sense where the ultimate rest that we yearn for is not going to be received here. It's not going to be received now. And so Hebrews 4 is going to help us to answer the question of how can I enter into God's glorious rest? And so let's examine the text and we're going to get into this and we're going to find out what Scripture speaks about on this topic. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was united by, not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We'll pause there for now. Uh, we're going to get through the whole chapter, but for now let's just stop there and let's, let's kind of figure out where we're at and let's figure out what's going on. All right, we've already talked about how we labor, we talked about how we work, and how we're pressing towards something, some type of goal, something for f- fulfillment. All right? And ultimately, what this passage is beginning to lay out for us is that there's this sense that believers can enter into the rest of God. And really what we're going to find in this passage is that there are three qualities that are necessary for entering into God's glorious rest. Faith, transparency, and humility. The first quality that we're going to examine is faith. Faith is necessary to enter into God's 
glorious rest. Now this passage starts off with therefore, and the context really we need to build off of is is from 16 to 19. I'm really not going to necessarily read that, but basically the idea of this context is that the people of Israel did not believe God, and therefore they did not enter into the rest of the promised land. They did not get to receive that. Instead, they had to wander in the wilderness. And so this passage, after explaining that context, begins with a fear. Let us fear. Now we're talking to believers here, and there's a sense of fear among believers or a congregation such as this in that time. And the fear is this, that though you sit here now, there's no guarantee that you are going to enter into that rest just because you're here. Just because you've shown up, just because you've been in church, you've heard sermons, you've heard the gospel, does not mean that you'll enter into the rest of God. And so what we see is that the Israelites, they had seen many things. God had demonstrated miracles of the ten plagues. He demonstrated a miracle of parting of the Red Sea. He fed them and gave them provision of manna throughout the wilderness. He gave them water provided from rock. And yet they get to the promised land, and they don't believe that God can allow them to enter into that. They do not trust God to give them that rest, and they decide that they're going to choose something else for themselves. They're going to try and find a different way, because what God seems to be leading them into is not what they would qualify or anticipate or expect to be rest. And this is something that we struggle with in our own lives because of the fact that we constantly struggle against sin. We constantly struggle against temptation. And the reality is is that there's one sense of us that says that instead of struggling against that, instead of fighting, instead of continuing to trust God or to initially trust God to help us to overcome our temptations, that instead we we would desire to give in to them because that would be easier. That would not be a fight. That would seem to be somewhat of a rest. But the truth is that that always leads to destruction. That always leads to death. And that is a lie. Well, the Israelites, in this very case, had seen God do so many things for them. And yet, they get there and they see that this land might not be able to be taken over. We might not be able to defeat these enemies. And so because of that, they decide not to fight, and they decide that it would be easier to not fight. And the reality is is that when we do not fight, we never receive rest. Um, And so we we have this sense of this, this fear that the good news has been preached, but not received. The good news has been declared, but there has been no genuine faith. And when there's no genuine faith, then the rest cannot be entered into. So what is this good news that we should be receiving? Well, that is the gospel. That is Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That Christ came, lived a perfect life, sinless, that we couldn't do ourselves. And he died on the cross, shedding his blood, that we might have righteousness and enter into a relationship, a fellowship with God, and therefore enter into God's glorious rest. But if we do not receive that message, then it doesn't matter. It does not benefit us. In this way, there's really three ways that we can respond to the gospel. We can respond in disbelief. We can respond in belief. Or we can respond in active belief, or what is really faith. Now, the last two seem like there's not much of a distinction, but I'm going to show you what I mean by that by an illustration. Let's say, for example, uh, there's a local venue around here that is giving away $100. Right? They're just giving away $100 for free, no strings attached. Now, probably, uh, the initial thought would be not to believe that. Like, who would do that? Who just gives away $100? Like, maybe to one person, sure. 
but I'm probably not going to be the first person there, so it's, it's not going to be there, right? $100 to anyone, like all day. If you show up, you get the $100. It's there, right? So you might respond for disbelief. But then some reliable sources, maybe some friends or something, you know, they come by, they procure the evidence, they're like, oh, look, I got this $100 from here. So now you start to believe. You start to say, okay, this is, this is legit, right? So now you believe that this is actually happening. This $100 is being given out, right? Now that's regular, genuine belief. Now see, this type of belief is basically the type of belief that demons have. I mean, demons and Satan, they don't argue that God is God. They don't disbelieve that God is great and that he's awesome. They know who Jesus was. They know that Jesus paid a sacrifice. They know all the works and all the things of Jesus. But the reality is that they do not submit to the authority of Jesus willingly. Of course, he's going to force them because he's God. And at the end of the day and at the end of the world, all of us will be forced to be subject to God at some point if we reject his love. The reality is that if you do not take the step and you do not decide to go and to receive that $100, you can believe it all you want, but you're never going to have it. The reality is that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. But unless you decide and believe and accept that he did it for you, and unless you make that commitment to decide and to accept that his payment was sufficient for you and nothing that you offer yourself is going to account to anything, then you do not have an active faith. And faith is necessary to enter into God's glorious rest. And so we have to. We have to trust in Jesus, and we have to trust and we have to believe in him. The good news as well of this passage is that the word remains up to this point that we've read has been used three times. And then, of course, also the declaration of today. This offer remains. There's a continuation of this offer. This offer is offered today. It exists today. You can receive it today. If you have it already today, you continue to rejoice in it and remember it and recall it. But what we have to realize is that there is still, again, from verse 1, this fear because it's while a promise remains. While. At the end of your life, that offer expires. You cannot redeem it. If we take the illustration of $100, if you go there tomorrow, you'll find that there is nobody giving out $100 because the offer was for today. Well, the message of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, the peace that we have in him, is offered throughout your life. And so really what you have to realize is that we do not know when we're going to die. We do not know what our time looks like. And so the offer of the gospel always stresses today, now, in this moment, because we're not guaranteed any other moment. So faith is for today. It is for now. And, of course, why would you want to wait for the guarantee to enter God's glorious rest when you can have the guarantee of it now? Right? And so when we respond to this, we don't want to harden our hearts. All right? Harden our hearts. What is that? I mean, this is pretty soft. I don't think there's anything I could do to harden it. I mean, it almost seems like that would be a good thing, right? You need this to live. Like, why wouldn't you want a hard heart so it can't be penetrated? Reality is, obviously, this is figurative language. It's not talking about the literal heart. It's talking about your will. It's talking about the idea of don't rebel against this. Do not be disobedient to this with the respect of having pride, having selfishness, this idea that you can do it on your own. You don't need God. So many different ways that we can harden our hearts towards his message, whether it is that we feel that we don't need it or that we don't deserve it. Both of those are false. We do need it. We can't get it ourselves. And in one sense where truly we don't deserve it in the sense that we don't earn it, it's still offered. Right? 
So the sense is, yes, genuinely you don't deserve it, but the reality is, is that you've been offered it. And that is why it is good news. Otherwise, it'd be a credit. All right? So let's, uh, let's move on a little bit more. All right? Uh, let's go verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Now what's happening here is that we get this idea of, now he's trying to spell out what God's glorious rest actually looks like. God's glorious rest is not something that we receive here. It's not something that we have on earth. And he uses the example of the, the Israelites, like I was talking to at the beginning, the context that he's been following up with. And we can see this in Joshua chapter 22, 23, 24, that the believers received rest. Like the people who actually did believe God, the second generation of the Israelites, not the first, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, and all of them died without receiving that rest. That is what scripture teaches us. But the second generation who did believe God, they did enter into that rest. And scripture helps us to realize that and to notice it. However, uh, what we are being taught here is that that rest is nothing compared to God's glorious rest that's being offered today and has been offered through Jesus Christ. Now, kind of stick with me a little bit on this. I'm going to kind of get a little, little deep somewhat. But basically, what's happening here, you can't see it in this text, but in the Greek text, this word for Joshua is the same exact word that is translated Jesus. So basically, whether or not you should translate this Joshua or Jesus kind of depend on a few things. There's really three options. It could be, could be Joshua, it could be Jesus. And then the he later on had given them rest. He would not have spoken of another day. So the person who's speaking of another day, who does that refer to? Well, it could be Joshua or Jesus, according to the Greek word, or possibly it could be David, who's in verse 7. So really, that's going to help us to shape the idea of what's really talking about. Who spoke of another day? Who is it that's spoken of another day of rest? Well, it can't be Joshua. Joshua never spoke of another day of rest. Um, so, but it could be David. That would fit well. David did speak of another day. He talked about today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's not so much as a rest so much as it is an offer of receiving from God and, and not disobeying him. And the third choice, the one that I would submit to you, is that the he refers to Jesus, and he's the one that's spoken. But the problem is we've already translated the word to be Joshua because Jesus didn't give rest to the, the Israelites, and that's certainly not what he's talking about. Uh, this is what's called um, a double entendre, which is basically when a word has two meanings. Uh, we use this in different ways in context. For example, um, in literature, uh, there's a book called with the title To Serve Men. Now, generally the idea of that book throughout it as you read it, really what it's talking about is human acts of kindness, human's act of service. But then you get to this one section where it's talking about, it's a, you know, a fictional lit- literature. Uh, it starts talking about these aliens. And then in that sense, they use the same phrase to serve man, but they're actually talking about to serve man as a food dish, to eat them, right? So as you can see, like you can use a phrase and it can mean two different things. Um, and you can use it within the same exact context and change what it means. And so here, this is what's happening. Joshua promised to give them rest and he gave them rest. But then Jesus, though, he has mentioned another day 
of rest. And the rest of the context really helps us. Verse 9 and verse 10 helps us to realize why that makes sense. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now this Sabbath rest, the seventh day rest, as we can see when it talks about, he's been laying out this idea that there's been works, and works have been done, and then it's been rested from. God worked, and then he rested. Now this idea then is that there's this glorious rest. This isn't the observance of the Sabbath day like we would probably typically think about it. He's changing the idea. He's using the idea of the Sabbath day of every seventh day we rest a little bit from our works to this idea that at the end of your life, once all the work is complete, there's absolute rest. And so he's saying there remains a Sabbath day, and that is for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Jesus Christ, after performing all the works, after performing the death and his burial and his resurrection, He's rested. He's at the right hand of God, seated, and thrown in power, waiting to come down and establish his kingdom. And so this is an encouragement. And it's a two-part two reality to that encouragement. Some of it is a little bit of uh, almost a message we don't want to hear. And that is that right now, we're working. There is work to be done. There is labor to be done for the gospel, for the glory of God, for the kingdom. When Christ was here, he didn't rest. He worked. He had things to accomplish for the glory and the power of the kingdom. This is something probably that we don't necessarily would like. We just want to rest. We just want to loaf around, hang out, and be fulfilled. The reality is that that's never going to happen. You could try it. You'll be dissatisfied. I promise you. But if you want to work and you want to toil and you you actually commit yourself to that, the reality is, is that you can be working towards this rest. You can be preparing your heart to enter into this glorious rest. Alternatively, you can try and struggle against that. You can war against that, never receive the message of Christ, and you can work and work and work all your life, never be satisfied, and then enter into eternity, and you still won't have rest because there will be eternal wrath and punishment awaiting you. So the message here that, that he's really laying out so far is that there is an offer, and that offer has been given today and Jesus is offering that. We see that in Matthew 11:28-30. Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Right? So this is Jesus, and He's offering us rest. Let's go a little bit on. All right. So this is faith. So we need that. We need faith. We need to believe that Jesus can give us rest. We need to understand that there is this believer's rest that we can enter into through faith. But there's some other things that are going to complement this faith. There's some things that help us to have genuine and true and legitimate faith. So faith is necessary to enter into the believer's rest, but also transparency is necessary. Transparency is necessary. All right, we're going to read 11 through 13 now. We're going to look at this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's this instance, as we talked about before, where there's this struggle, this desire to be put together. In that sense, 
we almost want to be able to offer things to God. We want to be able to say that we have this together or we have that together. So really, something that we often struggle with is this idea of being open, this idea of being transparent. This is a discipline. It's not natural for us to be transparent. Now, there's a reason for that. In one instance, you don't want to tell everybody everything bad about you. No one will ever want to talk to you. That's just the reality of it. You'll be a Debbie Downer. You know, you'll enter a room and it's like, oh, negative Nancy again, right? Like, no one wants to be around someone who's constantly, constantly talking about how they just don't have it together. So in one sense, it's, it's good that we have a little bit of a guard. But the unfortunate part is that, is that with God, we should have no guard. We should be fully and entirely and wholly transparent before him so that he can see us. Because the reality is, is that God already sees how we are. And so the only one that we're tricking or fooling is ourselves, which doesn't benefit us at all. And so because of this, because of this struggle, because of this desire necessarily to kind of hide ourselves, we never get to truly deal with God. But God peels away all of our facades, all of the masks, all the lies that we tell, and he cuts down to the very core of us, and he cuts down to exactly who we are and exactly what we look like, and there's nothing that's hidden from his sight. And no one escapes this. No one escapes God's scrutiny of them. No one escapes God's examination of them. So there's this sense that usually we'll fall into one one of two categories, probably when it comes to not being transparent with God. That is that we're self-righteous in one sense, and the idea that we think that we've worked or that we've earned it. Or again, as we mentioned earlier, the other type where it's someone who doesn't need God. So in one sense, we want to include God in our lives instead of giving our lives to him because we think we've somewhat earned it. Or we want to exclude God from our lives because we think we don't need him. We can get happiness and gain that all from ourselves, whatever. So in one sense, you've got the self-righteous. Self-righteous person over here decides, well, I go to church like 12 times a week. I read my Bible like eight times a day in a week. You know, like just, you can't even believe it. Like I had an extra day. It's just crazy. Like I'm so awesome. I'm so good. Like I do all these good deeds. I do all these acts of service. I do this for you, God. Now the person who wants to exclude God from life says, I've got money. I've got power. You know, I've got influence. People love me. I'm popular. I mean, sure, like life's pretty good. I am content. Why would I need God? In one sense, we say, God, I am a Wonka brand, strawberry-flavored, pink-hued box of nerds. Like, I am it. Right? But in reality, God says, no, I I see who you really are. That means nothing. So he takes that out and says, oh, there's not nerds in there. Oh, I've been duped. Right? Well, no, the reality is is that you're not that. And so self-righteous person goes, okay, maybe not nerds. Laffy Taffy does. Okay. All right, not as righteous as maybe I started out at first, God. Maybe I don't have everything together, but I got a good amount together. Like, you got to give me that. You got to give me credit. And uh, over here, the person who wants to exclude God from life, and say, all right, maybe I'm not content. Maybe I haven't found what I'm looking for, but I know I can find it. I know I'm there. I'm so close. I know it's not you. Just give me time. I'll, I'll figure it out, and I'll get back to you. I'll let you know why I don't need you, right? I'm good. I'm st- I still got the Wonka brand. I'm still strawberry flavored. I got pink you. All right, not nerds, live and taffy, but hey, I gave it a shot, right? Like, I'm good. And God's like, no. No, you're not. So he takes it out. I'm like, oh, man, I'm generic, double bubble. What is this? I got even Waka brand no more, right? And so God, you know, you want to include God, and you're like, all right, maybe I don't have much to offer. 
but I'm not as bad as Joe Schmo over here. I mean, he doesn't got nothing. At least I got a little something, right? That counts. That counts, including God, right? Excluding God. All right. I have no idea what it is. Maybe I don't got it, but I know somewhere in the future, way off in the distance, I'm going to find it. I know you're offering it right now, but I don't believe you. I don't think you can give it to me. Exclude it. The reality is, is that we're all laid bare before God. No titles, no stigmas, nothing. We have nothing to offer God. There is nothing that we can bring to God that will impress him, and there's nothing that we can look for outside of God that will complete us. The reality is, is that before God, we're all laid bare, and what he says is that you have absolutely nothing to offer. But the beauty of the gospel message is that transparency is necessary for faith, because when we come to the point and we realize, God, I have nothing to offer you, what we realize is that we can accept the truth of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when it talks about the fact that those who believe, you know, and coming to him as to a living stone, which is rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you know, talking about coming to him, you also are being built up as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices which are acceptable and pleasing to God. So we can come to God and we can say, like, boom, God, I'm a palace. What up? Right? Which is not true, right? We could say that. Or, or, alternatively, we could say, God, I know how you see me. I know before you, I'm but rubble. I'm nothing. And what we can do is we can accept that and we can say, God, I need you to make me into something beautiful. And instead of being this palace, which in the sight of God is really rubble, you can recognize, Lord, I'm nothing and I need you. And you'll enter into God's glorious rest and he will make you into a spiritual house that is glorious. And he will provide you with glory. Did you know the scripture says that as we enter into eternity that we will receive glory and honor? Whoa, that's only God's. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says that we will receive glory and honor. Right? God does not share his position of God with us. Right? He does not share his position of being all-powerful. He does not share his position of being all-knowing. None of these things. We're not going to get any of those things. But there's a sense that we will receive glory. Well, that one's easy, right? We call it the glorification of the believer. That one's pretty easy. Um, but we receive glory and we receive honor from God. But not if we think that we can get it ourselves. It has to be given. And God will offer that freely to us. And the good news is that anyone, anyone can be transparent. Right? But the tough part is you've got to choose it. Right? You're not going to just be walking one day and just decide, oh, I think I'm just going to be a blank slate before everyone. Right? You've got to discipline yourself and you've got to choose that I'm going to allow myself to view myself as how God sees me laid bare so that I might accept the good news of the free offer of salvation. God's glorious rest. So faith is complicated in my transparency and you need transparency in order to have genuine faith because without transparency, true faith is hindered because you're not offering God who you are. You're offering God this cast image, who you've created, who you've designed because you think you'll fit with God in that way. Right? So be transparent. Transparency is necessary. Faith is necessary. So our final point, the third quality, is that humility is necessary to enter into God's glorious rest. But to enter into God's glorious rest, you need faith, genuine true faith, which is complemented 
by transparency. And of course, that in turn is going to be complemented by humility. It's kind of hard to be transparent without humility. And we're going to kind of see this a little bit more. Let's finish off the passage here. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is our example. Like, Jesus has done this, people. Like, he is in God's glorious rest right now. And because he's entered it, because he knows the way, we can trust that his promise that he's offering us in rest can be achieved and that he can do it. Right? It might be a little bit harder to accept these things if we didn't have an example. Right? I mean, maybe I'll take some pointers from Kobe Bryant if he teaches me how to shoot. But I mean, you know, Joey over here in the third grade, I mean, maybe he's not as credible. But Je- so Jesus has done it, though. You know? I mean, who's Kobe compared to Jesus? Nobody. But with reference to basketball, like, Kobe is a good source. Well, with reference to getting into God's glorious rest, there is no source other than Jesus. He is not only the ultimate source, but the only source for us of entering into God's glorious rest. And this is why we have to constantly keep in mind and constantly keep our focus and attention on Jesus. We've got to recognize the power of the gospel, and we've got to live it out in our lives. But Jesus didn't just do it. He did it in a way that was powerful and perfect, even though he experienced the same things that we experience. Jesus was tempted. We're tempted. So he understands what it's like to be tempted. Well, how do we know it's tempted? Okay, yeah, he says he's tempted. Give me some examples. All right, smarty pants, I'll give you some examples. Right? A temptation of Satan. Um, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Of course, we probably know this. All right, well, what does that break down as? All right, well, Jesus was tempted with the abuse of power. Right? Turn these stones into bread. I can get bread at the market. Why don't you just turn stones into bread? Right? Like, that's abuse of power. Right? Because, and also, he's supposed to be, he's fasting. Right? So he's going to break the fast. Be like, oh, all right, I can do this. I'll show you. Right? Abuse of power. Pride. He was tempted, secondly, by pride. You know? Satan says, jump off this temple. Surely the angels will catch you. You're Jesus. You're the man. Like, God's not going to let you die. You can do whatever you want. Right? Pride. I'm it. I've arrived. No one has the right to be more prideful than Jesus. Yet he was humble. Probably should tell us something about humility. Right? So he was tempted by pride. Thirdly, he was tempted by idolatry or wealth. Fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Right? Idolatry. Worship Satan. Giving you the kingdoms of the world. Wealth, power, prestige. Oh, hello, mister. I'll exclude God from my life. Looks like Jesus didn't take your offer. Jesus decided that that was not a good idea. Right? We also see that his will was tempted a lot. Uh, we take example Peter. You know, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that to Peter? What does Peter say to Jesus? Peter says, no, Lord, sh- you know, certainly you will not die. You will not sacrifice yourself. You will not allow yourself to die. That's a temptation, a temptation against his will. Why? Jesus doesn't legitimately in the flesh want to die. I mean, he was legitimate human. I mean, right now, 
I don't know about you guys, but I would not like to just simply die right now. Like, that is not okay with me. I mean, if God decides to do that, that's his will. But my will would not be that I die, especially in a specific way. Now, we're not even just talking about dying. We're talking about Jesus knew the way that he died. So let's say, oh, you know, pass and peacefully may I sleep. That sounds good compared to other deaths, right? But, like, what if I was like, all right, some guy's going to come in here. He's going to, like, brutally beat you over the head. And, like, you're going to be conscious the whole time and get, like, brutally murdered. Like, I am not okay with that, right? And so Jesus is telling Peter, like, I'm going to be hung on a cross. Jesus knows, you know, I'm going to be there for hours. It's going to be agonizing, one of the most excruciating deaths that you can ever experience. And I'm going to do that for you. And Peter says, no, Jesus, don't do that. You you won't die, right? That's temptation. Jesus doesn't necessarily want to experience that. How do we know that? The second battle of temptation with Jesus' will, the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he pray? Lord, if possible, take this come from me, but whose will? God's will, not his own. Right? He struggles with this will. He struggles with what he wants, but also what he knows is best and what God ultimately has for him. Why? Why? What's his, fit, what's his focus on, right? His focus is on the glorious rest. But he knows that it's going to take struggle and effort and suffering to get to that rest. So he could have chosen to rest and just, you know, I'm not going to die. I'm just going to live life. I'll do what I want. I'll live however I want. Not go through these painful things, but he knows that that's not genuine rest. Laziness, apathy. It won't get him anywhere. It won't get us anywhere. So Jesus, he struggled in very similar ways as we did. And he struggled with some things that we often struggle with. But what separates Jesus from us, what makes him so much higher and better than us, is that he never gave in. So we may be able to complain to one another, maybe, and have some sort of comparison of, I work harder, I labor harder, my life has more stress. Maybe you could do that. I don't recommend that you do. It's a bad idea. But I suppose that you could. What you cannot do is you cannot say, Jesus, you don't know my struggle. You've not struggled as I have. Because the reality is is that no struggle is greater than a struggle that's never given into. Jesus never gave into temptation. Now, granted... There is this sense where obviously the choice leads to death and destruction and the temptation is going to arise again. But let's not deceive ourselves in the fact that giving into that temptation for a time does give rest. Does it not? Right? If I'm struggling against something and I give into it, there is this sense of, oh, rest. Unfortunately, followed by the, oh, rest is, oh, pain, destruction, chaos, right? But we, we never pay attention to that. We never focus on, oh, that's going to come after. It's just like the, Oh, rest, and then chaos. See, the, the beauty is that we can trade struggling with that, the little bit of ah, rest, destruction, ah, rest, destruction, chaos in my life. We could trade that for consistent work, consistent struggling, and when we do fall, trusting in Jesus, coming before him, so that we can get to the ah, rest moment that never has a chaos or destruction after it. Amen? Right? Okay? So, this is God's glorious rest that we're talking about, and this is what we're talking about interesting entering into. Now, how do we have this type of faith? How do we have this type of humility, this type of humbleness before God? And, you know, how do we know that God can give it to us? Well, it's interesting that we have this confidence. It says, you know, draw confidently to the throne of grace, and you will receive grace and mercy in the time of need. Right? Okay, well, we have confidence because Jesus has done it. Jesus has experienced it. He's overcome it. And he's offering us strength through it. Right? In our weakness, he is made strong. And so what we see here is that 
we need to come before his throne of grace. And we will receive mercy and grace in the time of need every time. Now, the reality of that is quite simple, something that we often overlook, but his grace and mercy is always given to us in time of need because we always need him, right? If you come before the throne of grace, you're going to receive grace and mercy. You want to know why? Because you need it. You come tomorrow, you still need it. Every day, we need his grace and mercy. And the beauty of that is that we can confidently approach his throne because every day, not only does he know that we need it, but he gives it freely and abundantly to us as long as we approach him and we trust him and we just come before him as we are and we say, Lord, I need your grace and mercy. He already knows we need it. But once we know that we need it, we can receive it. So that's something that we should be constantly doing. The unfortunate part of this is that it's difficult sometimes to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. This is why the beauty of childlike faith is a great example that Jesus uses. Because what we recognize about a child is that with a parent or something like that, we're talking about a young child, not like a child who's learned how to get away with things and things like that yet. I mean, obviously, he's, he kind of knows that just at an early age. But we're talking about a child, the world's new to him, right? They stick pretty new. Generally, children stick pretty close to parents, especially when they're outside in the big world. A lot of things, lots of confusion. Some children hold their parent's hand all the time. You know, you let go of the parent's hand, they're still standing right beside you, and they lose, they go crazy, right? It's like the sense of laws of protection. Well, a child will hold on to a parent's hand, and they'll cross the street, no big deal. They don't even pay attention to anything, right? Which seems like to us, like, I'm not going to hold one in your hands and just be like, oh, I'm going to walk out on the street, maybe I won't get hit by a car, right? The children, they're just like, oh, I'm good, right? I'm good. I got my parent's hand, okay? Well, the reality is that us, you know, we keep checking now. You know, we check, is there a car coming? Is there a car coming? Well, with Jesus, like, Jesus knows what's going on. So in some way, we need to have this childlike faith. Not that we're ignorant or don't know, because the child has received protection from the parent. If it's a good parent. Now, obviously, if this parent's not good, that's not going to be the relationship that the child has with the parent. The parent's not going to feel comfortable and protected. The child's not going to feel comfortable and protected around the parent. Right? But Jesus, he gives us a sense to where we can trust him and we can rely on him. But then there's this other sense where, okay, this child, same way, you know, trusting the parent with the parent. But young kid, you know, let's say like a ball goes in the street. Well, now they're distracted. There's a ball. I'm just going to run out and get the ball. You know, no attention to anything around them. No attention to the fact that there's vehicles that could hit them. There is danger and there's destruction running out in that road for the ball. The reality is, is that that's how we react to Jesus with sin. We take our eyes off Jesus because of temptation. This temptation over here is like, oh, this looks good. We forget that when we're with Jesus, it's okay to be in the road. It's okay. He's got it. He's there. It's good. But see, when we're not with Jesus, we're not focused on Jesus, our eyes aren't fixated on Jesus, there's so many dangers there. The, the path, the way hasn't been cleared. And so basically what we need to realize is that when you're looking at Jesus now, we're good, but when we're not, it's not so good. How do we know this? Well, later on in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks in, chapter, in verses 1 and 2, he says, you know, fix your eyes on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Laying, you know, before that, he talks about laying aside encumbrances and hindrances. What's that? Temptation. In other words, don't focus on temptation. Don't want to give in temptation. Focus your eyes, fix your eyes on Christ. Why? Because Christ is the author of our faith, right? He's the one who began it. But he's not just the author he is the perfecter of our faith. Again, this is why the believer's rest and God's glorious rest, remembering these concepts, apply to us. Because even if we're in his grace, the reality is that we can take his eyes off. 
He hasn't just started your faith and he's like, here's your faith, you're good, you're in the kingdom, you've got the checklist done, now you're good to go, don't worry about it, um, live your life, I'll be here at the end, right? No. He starts our faith and then he progresses our faith, progresses it, progresses it, progresses it, to lead us up into this rest. And that journey is a struggle. But it doesn't necessarily have to have no rest. You know, uh, Even though this passage isn't talking about the actual Sabbath, uh, there is an actual Sabbath that we should be participating in. We should seek to get rest from the world. We should depart from the typical routine of things to get a little bit of rest. But even in that, realize that that rest is only a foreshadowing of what is to come. So we can receive rest here as well. So this labor, you know, this labor can be exhausting. It can be taxing. It can be toilsome. And it can weigh on us. And it can leave us broken, lost, confused, and lonely. But the reality is, is that if we come before God and we, we realize that our works don't matter, that there's nothing that we have to offer, we can recognize all those things before him, and he will become the one who is going to help to bring us into a positive relationship with him. We say, Lord, I'm broken, and he will make you whole. Say, God, Lord, I am lost, and he will give you guidance. We say, Lord, I am confused, and he will clear your vision. Say, Lord, I have no satisfaction, no joy, no peace. I do not know how to enter and enjoy life. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is what Jesus offers. And that is the beauty of what we can accept and what we can live in. And so when we realize, not who we want to be, we want to be whole, we want to be put together, we want all these things, that's not a bad desire. But before we can get there, we have to recognize who we are. Right? Transparency. That transparency, though, requires that humility because it's hard to say, God, I'm broken, I'm lost, I'm confused, I need you, if you're over here as the inclusion of God, the guy who wants to include God in your life, and like, I've got things together spiritually on my own. Or the exclusion is here, is like, all right, spirituality, I don't know, but i still got things together. You need humility. You need to approach the, approach the throne of grace with humility and transparency, which breeds genuine faith. So to enter into God's glorious rest, we need faith, transparency, and humility. And the beauty of that is the gospel message is for today. You can receive from Christ today. That offer remains today. But you have to choose to be humble, transparent before God, so that you might have genuine faith and the promise that it's being offered to you now so you would receive it and accept it. Let's pray. <sighs> Lord, we need you today. There is nothing in this world that can offer us true peace, true rest, true understanding, true guidance, true fulfillment in this world. But Lord, you are all those things to us. You can fill our lives with purpose and with meaning. And we can find a peace in you. We can find a rest in you and we can recognize that we do not have to create these fabrications or these lies or these cast images of ourselves just to impress others or to impress you when we're actually creating a prison that we live in that keeps us from being able to just enjoy you and enjoy creation because we're bound up in these lies and this sense of who we want to be but not who we really are. And so we always feel like we're fake. But Lord, before you, we can be genuine. We can be true. We can be real and know that you love us enough to accept us as we are. 
but you love us even more to not let us stay there. But that you will not just create and be the author of our faith, but that you will perfect it. And you will lead us into glory, even as you yourself, Jesus Christ, are in glory. Because of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Because you paid the price, you lived a perfect life, knowing no sin. You died, your blood was shed on our behalf. And you rose victorious over sin and death. And you offer now the very same rest for us in the future, entering into eternity as you now freely enjoy. Not because of us, but because of you. With nothing to offer, Lord, we accept everything from you. So, Lord, just help us to keep our minds focused on you and our attention focused on you. We want to worship you today and to praise your precious and holy name. For you and you alone deserve all the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. For you are the only one who can ever not only know what glorious rest is, but offer it to us. Amen. If you have any questions, if you want to talk with someone about this glorious rest or how know more about Christ or anything like that, uh, we'll have, there's elders, there's Pastor Willie, um, and we're going to have a, a prayer team in just a second as well. So uh, it, today is the time. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Today. Thank you for listening to this mess in Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com, contact us by email, cornerstonecom at comcast.net, or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.